You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We are going to finish the book. So we have been scratching around like a chicken looking for some dry corn in the dirt here these last couple of weeks. So we got one more to go here. Rosemary Radford Ruther, chapter 39. Feminist theologian. You know what's the first thing that stands out to me? She has both her father's last name and her husband's last name. Now what kind of a feminist takes two men's last names? Just a thought. Just a thought. Anyway. All right, so let's talk about her. And Miss Betty, perhaps, who led up to her. So, all right, as we've done in the past, in the spirit of Christian generosity, what can we say about her life before we begin to criticize it? That's what I thought. Okay, so... (laughs) Well done. <laughs> well, let's do it this way then. Let's start on uh, on page 279. And notice in that first paragraph, the roots to this feminism actually go back to the abolitionist movement of the 19th century and the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. The reason I just point that out to you is as an illustration of something we've said a number of times here, and that is ideas have consequences often that go way out into the future beyond them. And that's clearly the case here. So the idea of of the abolitionist movement was what? What was that all about? It was the abolition of slavery, yeah. So that's a 19th century issue. Right, surrounding the American Civil War and so forth, but that those ideas and writings and so forth went forth into the future long after the the, um, the passing of what is it, the Sixteenth Amendment, I believe, and uh, and the um, granting of full constitutional protections to those of the uh, African descent, and yet she and her ilk gather up some of those writings and those ideas and repurpose them for a different cause. The same thing with the civil rights movement. So you notice how what is essentially dealing with uh, the issues of black Americans has been morphed over into dealing with the issues of white women. White women. Okay? So... Beyond that, notice um, he says in the first sentence of the next paragraph, it had an immediate and profound effect upon, uh, he says, the Christian church. And I I just inserted the word liberal Christian church. Uh, The result being feminist theology. And this has much in common with liberation theology. And so what did we say when we spoke about liberation theology last time? What did we see as its origins? Do you remember? Poverty was sort of the facing issue, yes? Right. 
Right. So Marxism drove liberation theology and its attempt, again, just trying to be generous, taking people at their words and so forth, the idea of trying to deal with extreme poverty and some of the abuses of capitalistic systems and so forth. And so Marxism was a response to that, not a good one, but it was a response to it and has been incorporated into liberation theology. So you can see the kind of, of stew <laughs> that is uh, cooking on the back of the stove here for feminist theology. But what I want to take you over is to page 280, and I want to talk with you a little bit about this. There's a quote here, and uh, it's right at the top of the page. It says, other central convictions of Christian feminist theology are these, and here it is. Christianity and Christian theology have been exclusively patriarchal and virtually oblivious to women's concerns for centuries. Now, here's my question for you. Is the Bible patriarchal? Let's just start with that. That's a yes or no question. Is the Bible patriarchal? Okay. Somebody want to take a stab at it? Defining patriarchal. Okay. Male leadership? Yes. Say what? Yes. 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 Right? As you read the Old Testament and New Testament, do you find it to be patriarchal? This is the yes or no question. Then I'm going to ask you the second question is, is that, a good, is that good or bad? But before we render, let's just find out what it is. Right. Right. In other words, and because this, this uh, accusation, this complaint continues to circulate and even circulates in the, um, what used to be the fringes of evangelicalism is no longer the fringes of evangelicalism. It's very much being streamed into the middle of evangelicalism, the idea that the Bible is patriarchal. Christianity is patriarchal. Illustrations. Pastors are men. Elders are men. Leaders of churches are men. Christianity is, is uh, you know, God the Father, Christ the Son. It's just these male images are used. The, the, the uh, disciples were not women. They were men. So as you work through, and then certainly you go back into the Old Testament and you read it in the law, and there are portions of the law that honestly make us scratch our heads. Uh, at times, uh, things like, for example, uh, the right of a husband to invalidate a wife's vow, or a father to invalidate a daughter's vow, either to validate or invalidate her vow. Right? So that is that patriarchal? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, would we agree? Conviction. Christian feminists said that Christianity and Christian theology have been exclusively patriarchal. Yes. Because the Bible is patriarchal. Because God is patriarchal. That's right. That's right. So, and that kind of begs that follow-up question. Is patriarchal good or bad? We, and we would say that, that patriarchal, when practiced uh, within the... the boundaries and confines and teachings of, of Christian theology is, is a wonderful and necessary good. Have men abused 
patriarchal privilege. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. For the same reasons like liberation theology in South America with the poor and so forth, did they have legitimate grievances? Of course they did. You know, moving into the abolitionist movement in, in mid-19th century America, did, you know, were there actual and legitimate grievances among blacks? Of course. Civil rights movement, yes. So the problem becomes is rather than go to the Scriptures for the solution, her answer is to do what? Yes, I might use Christian terms, but all redefined, but essentially jettison the authority of the Scriptures was what she was advocating, right? Um, page 281. Under contribution, second paragraph. Ruther and other Christian feminist theologians share a profound distrust of Scripture. Isn't that interesting? A profound distrust. Why would they have a, dip, a profound distrust of the Scriptures? Because the Scriptures disagree with feminism? Yes. Or feminism disagrees with, with the Scriptures? Yes. Right. Good, good, very good insight. I agree. I mean, it's traumatic. Uh, Twelve years old, lose your mother for sure. Uh, her education was steeped in the cesspools of liberal theology. Absolutely, all the big name schools. She's bright. She's very bright. So notice, uh, you know, picking up on that, following along. Her early education, second paragraph on two eighty, following paragraph, was largely in a private Catholic institution. She entered Scripps College to study art. There, she met and married her. Herman Ruther, okay, she took his last name, who was studying political science and who, along with Rosemary's mother and various other teachers along the way, helped shape her thinking and convictions. Isn't that interesting? She's a free thinker, and yet there's a whole series of men that have shaped her thinking. Okay? And, and I would contend that the source of feminism is men. It originates in males, not in women. And it's promulgated because men abdicate authority or, or exercise unbiblical authority and create an environment of, of uh, chafing under that kind of, of um, poor shepherding. Which means, guys, we're, I mean, we can, there's plenty of stones we could throw here, but recognize that within our hearts lie the seedbeds to produce this in our own daughters, <laughs> our own grandchildren, our wives, ladies in the church, so forth. Okay? So, it's worth it to spend a little bit of time with this. This is probably near and dear to my heart as well, just because uh, I have three sisters, and they are all absolutely steeped in feminism. Very much so. And um, so reading this chapter is like reading the biographies of my sisters, even their educational attainments. So, Okay. So yes, a profound distrust of Scripture. Yet, uh, well, let's continue there. We're on page 281. Therein they find the laws regarding women's uncleanness during menstruation and after childbirth, priesthood that excludes women, commands for women to be submissive to men, even restrictions regarding women speaking in church. All of these were, in her mind, 
illustrations of a, a, a um, heavy-handed patriarchal approach, right? And honestly, uh, the idea that the woman was unclean following the birth of a child, I don't know if you've read that carefully or not, it's 30 days following a male child, it's 60 days following a female child. We don't exactly know why God did that. He did set it up that way. We can speculate at some of the possible reasons for that, but is it because the birth of a daughter somehow renders her mother more unclean? And we would say no. No, it can't be that. Ontologically, they were made in his image, right? Male and female made he them. So, okay. But notice again, she does find in Scripture the all too often overlooked female prophets, judges, leaders, and followers of Jesus. She sees in Scripture what she calls the new hermeneutic. Oh, that's my words. The prophetic liberating tradition. Okay. So this is her key to interpreting Scripture. Practiced at its best by Jesus himself. So, you know, let's see. Oh, I've got a margin. No, look at this toxic brew. On, the, on this basis, many aspects of the Bible are frankly set aside and rejected. Middle of the paragraph. So for Ruth, the Bible is certainly not the only authority, so the scriptura, nor even the primary authority for doing theology. In addition to the Bible, critically assessed, of course, and learned at Claremont, right? from uh, rather creatively integrates other sources into her theology, texts from heretical Christianity such as Gnosticism, yeah, you remember our, uh, I, w I was going to call them friends, but that would be the wrong uh, terminology for that. Remember the ancient Gnostics? We talked about that once ago. Marcion, remember him? Want to mutilate the scriptures? Uh, let's see what else we got here. Um, traditions from Roman Catholicism as well as Eastern Orthodoxy and Protestantism, themes from non-Christian religions and concepts from a variety of philosophers, both ancient and modern, such as ancient Greek philosophers and Marxism, along with, of course, the primary source of woman's experience. So maybe that is her ultimate hermeneutic, the hermeneutic experience. Okay? So you can see when you've jettisoned yourselves from all transcendent outside authority sources and you're now sucking it out of your thumb, that you can make it whatever you want it to be. Yes. Yes, exactly. They have And they have the credibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> uh, what do we got here? Uh, let's just keep going. Uh, if feminists want to redevelop theology, they must start with the doctrine of God. Okay, so let's do that. Let's, re, let's reimagine God. And so they do. Ruther's conception of God is the primal matrix, which is similar to Tillich's ground of being, a bunch of gobbledygook, that from which all that exists springs into existence or is given birth, if you will. So we're now, um, we've got the echoes of pantheism here. Uh, her unique title for this divine one is God slash S. Okay? It's not long, by the way, till it's, it's, it's uh, God is, the female God. Ruther's goal is to reverse the dualism. Now, this is key. is to reverse the dualisms of historic Christianity, such as supernatural, natural, spirit, matter, soul, body, even good, evil, and, of course, male, female. Listen, there is a 
full-on assault on Western civilization and the church at right this point, at right here. Okay? And that is, is, is the world oneism or twoism? That terminology was coined by this gentleman, Mr. Peter Jones, okay, from San Diego, California. This is a good book, The Other Worldview, Exposing Christianity's Greatest Threat, forward by R.C. Sproul. He's written a number of books. He's a prolific author where he identifies this very question. In other words, the theology of oneism, which is the theology of feminism, which is the theology of, of uh, liberal theology, is that God and the world are one. That's pantheism. Twoism says that God and all else. And God has created a twoist world, a dual world, as it's said here, right? We have, we have supernatural and natural. We have spirit and matter, soul, body, good, evil, male, female, man, woman. Man, woman. But they're trying to break it all down. They're trying to break it all down. Where does this stuff come from? It comes right out of the pit of hell. This comes right out of the pit of hell. This satanically inspired Christianity for which abortion is their sacrament and transgenderism is their high priesthood is seeking to androgenize the Western world. That's what your children, my grandchildren, are being brought up in. We've got to understand it. We've got to be able to Marshall biblical argument against it. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So, check out Peter Jones if you're looking for some summer reading. Summer's coming quickly. They're all good. He's got a bunch of books. They're all good. Yep. He's got one, uh, um, what is it? The Gnostic Empire Strikes Back, I think is the title. Um, so, anyway, I, I commend his works to you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This is paganism. Dressed up as Christianity of sorts. Okay? So, has feminism infected evangelical Christianity? What do you think? It certainly has. It certainly has. So, but I would just suggest this, and it's not the idea is not new with me, but if there are women pastors, it's because the males have failed the leadership. Okay. So in the sense, the, the criticism belongs on the men of the church for abdicating their responsibilities to lead in that way. Okay? All right. Yes, it is an old problem, for sure. It is an old problem. Okay, anything else? You guys just chafing at the bit to speak about... She rejected Chalcedon, yes. That's right. Yep. What's that? She did get married. Barely. Barely, yep. 
All right, let's turn the page then. That's enough of that. Let's talk about the last fellow here, Carl F.H. Henry. 1913 to 2003. Good long life. Okay. So, what's our view of him? Up or down? Up. Mostly up. There's a controversy about everybody in this book. <laughs> yes, mostly up. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Here's a little insight. Um, things are always considered minor matters, minor matters by the people who don't believe in them. Then they relegate it to a secondary matter. It's a minor matter because it doesn't resonate with me. So, yes. And that position exists within the tent of orthodoxy. That, that a six-day literal biblical creation, you know, young earth, all of that sort of thing is uh, out of step with scientific research, right? Because what was one of the things, maybe the thing that drove Carl Henry and those who partnered with him? Well, what were they after? What were they opposed to? What were they after? Remember his dates, 1913. They were opposed to fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. Okay, We'll talk about that a little bit. And their passion that drove them was... Let's see, I'm going to point you to the exact quote. Page 290. Top paragraph in the middle, he wrote, quote, If Christianity is to win intellectual respectability in the modern world, comma, react to me. What do you think? Is that possible? It is not possible. Simon, why is it not possible? Yes, 1 Corinthians 1. That's exactly right. We preach Christ crucified. <laughs> it's foolishness to the Greeks. It's exactly right. It is not possible to achieve intellectual respectability in the modern world without, no, period, period. The mission to do that will cause you to begin to jettison portions of the orthodox faith in order un, under the assumption that if I just let these things go like literal creation that will grant me the respectability in the academy but will it? no it will not it will not because the problem with us is not an intellectual problem the problem with us and our Christ is a moral problem. The only solution to a moral problem is the foolishness of the gospel. So it, so it is a fool's mission. And, and, and that, unfortunately, I think is the sad epitaph that hangs over Carl Henry's life. 
Was he a brilliant man? Brilliant man. Yes. Can you read his writings with profit? Yes. You for sure can. You sure can. But notice his involvement, for example, let's just take a look at some things here. Uh, page 287. Beginning in 1947, Henry served as a faculty member of Fuller Theological Seminary. Hang on to that name. A brand new evangelical institution in Pasadena, California, specifically designed in cooperation with Billy Graham and Harold J. Ockengay from Boston, Massachusetts, to form a new evangelical seminary that, that emphasized cutting-edge academics for Christians. We'll come back to Fuller in a minute. 1956, he helped launch an evangelical magazine, Christianity Astray. No, I mean Christianity Today. <laughs> he served as editor until 1968. He served on the faculty of Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, once an Orthodox school, no longer. Tip in my hand. Worked closely with a variety of other evangelical organizations, National Association of Evangelicals, World Vision, Time recognized Henry's accomplishments in 1978 when he named him Evangelical's leading spokesman. Keep flipping here. Conclusion. As a result of Carl Henry and many others, the Evangelical movement had grown in size and influence. Newsweek magazine declared in 1976 the year of the Evangelical. I know a lot of you weren't even born back then, but there's enough of us that were. While fundamentalism has declined, but certainly not decreased, it's ceased rather. Evidence for evangelicalism's vitality, interesting, this book was written in 2013, 10 years ago. Evidence of evangelicalism's vitality includes socially oriented organizations such as Focus on the Family, Prison Fellowship, that's Chuck Colson, educational institutions such as Wheaton College, Biola University, and scholarly societies such as the Evangelical Theological Society and the Institute for Biblical Research. Guess what? With the exception of the Institute for Biblical Research, which I cannot speak to personally, the rest of these organizations have all gone off the deep end. They've all driven off the rails. They, they have negotiated truth for acceptability. Until some of them, you can't even recognize them anymore. Like Christianity Today. It's unrecognizable. It's a left-wing publication. The Evangelical Theological Society accepts papers now from out-and-out heretics. Wheaton College. Hotbed of, of uh, leftist politics. Feminist theology. Biola. And Fuller Seminary. Uh, J-Mac took a couple class or two at Fuller, but he did not, he's not a Fuller grad, he's a Talbot grad. Talbot? Oh, Talbot, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, got the wrong Okay. So, there's a pair of books here for you. Again, I recommend these to you.
This is 1979. This is 1976. So this is the original. Harold Linzel is the author, one of the founding faculty members at Fuller Theological Seminary. This is the sad case of Fuller. Fuller is completely lost out to lunch. This book details, it's called The Battle for the Bible. It, it details the loss of commitment to the scriptures at Fuller Seminary by a, a founding faculty member who eventually it became so bad that he ended up, I can't remember if they fired him or he left, but he's gone from there. He details it and the, and the creep. All the while, faculty members continuing to sign the doctrinal statement every year with the fingers crossed behind their backs, redefining terms, and this thing just went off the rails. He came back with this one, the Bible in the balance, a further look. He comes back and he examines Fuller further, and he also looks at the Southern Baptist Convention and the uh, Missouri Synod of, uh, of the Lutheran Church and details how all of those organizations went off the rails as well. Okay? So, interestingly, this one is 79, I believe. Yeah, 1979. These are not hard reads, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, you know, I'm giving you all these super hard books. These things are really fascinating to read. He was also one of the key organizers of the uh, inerrancy, Chicago inerrancy. Yes. And I, was, I can't remember, was that 79 or 80 right in there? Uh, yeah, 80, I think. Yep. Yes. I mean, that was a massive response to that whole... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So, interestingly, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, righted the ship after this book uh, for, a, for a time, uh, and probably one of the prominent uh, men at the, at the forefront of righting the ship was... Um, it's terrible. Southern Seminary... Um, Albert Moeller. Okay? So, regardless of what you think about Albert Moeller now and the Southern Baptist Convention, which is seeming to roll back off the rails again, but it was, uh, it was life or death. I attended a Southern Baptist seminary for one semester in 1986, and it was a hotbed of controversy at that time between what they called the modernists and the fundamentalists. And, it, and the school, which was the largest seminary in the Southern Baptist Convention at that time, was in the balance, for sure. So, if you're interested in history, these are good reads. Recommend them to you. Okay? So, what would we say about Carl Henry? Well, we would say that he clearly identified some of the problems of, of uh, fundamentalism. So, he, he outlines them here. I'm not going to go back at them. I'll just read them out to you. But... Um, that they were very pessimistic and negative regarding culture. So, if that shoe fits, wear it. Um, the practice of what's called secondary separation, which is big in, in real fundamentalist circles. Secondary separation means that if, um, if, if uh, Mike, uh, if William is a heretic or considered a heretic, and Mike associates with him, 
Yeah, then I can't associate with Mike. I must I must separate not only from William for his heresy, but Mike because of his association with a known heretic, even though he himself does not profess any heretical views. That's the idea of secondary separation. And it can go to tertiary. I mean, it can start to, until you become like the IFCA, which is I fellowship completely alone. So, I mean, if it's pushed too far, <laughs> you find you have few friends. Okay, but that idea of secondary separation. Um, they criticize the emphasis on the imminent return of Christ, and thus the basically the idea of you know beam me up, let the place burn. It's going to burn anyway. That idea. Interesting. This one. Uh, this is on page. This stuff's all on two eighty six. But the gospel is intended for salvation of individuals only. So, and he lifts a quote here from. Um, Who is it? Let's see. 286. Is it 286? Yeah, there it is. Moody. First paragraph at the bottom. Evangelist Dwight L. Moody's comment was typical. He compared the world to a sinking ship that is beyond hope, and Christians' responsibility was to save as many souls as possible from going down with the ship. In other words, he was criticizing what he saw in fundamentalism as an idea that the only thing we're here to do is to save souls. That's it. And that, and we have no other interest in anything beyond that. And if the world world's going to hell in a handbasket, you know, we don't even care. Okay. So that, that kind of, of a single-minded approach, uh, he thought, was not true and faithful to the implications of the Lordship of Christ over all things. Uh, yeah, and then um, back on page uh, 285, minor matters given major importance. So making mountains out of what he considered to be molehills, such as eschatological positions, things like that. Okay? So, how would we evaluate his life? What would we say? I think we'd say that he was a man who loved Christ, was under submission to the Lordship of Christ, sought to make the gospel understandable in his time, wrote some pretty serious and profound theology, but had a serious blind spot. Okay. Where was he educated? Do you remember? Where was he educated? Page 287. Wheaton College. Interesting that he liked Jordan Clark. Mm-hmm. Almost the total opposite to Billy Graham and the others. Yes, yes. Northern Baptist Theological Seminary with a BD and a THD. Northern Seminary, a PhD in philosophy at Boston University. Okay, completed in 1949. So, was he educated at the right schools? Yeah, he was. He was. Okay. Matt, or uh, Luke 640. When a disciple is fully mature, he will be just like his teacher, Jesus said. Choose your teachers well. Choose your teachers well. I, I suspect he bore a lot Yes. So, you know, if that's one measure of a man, Yes, absolutely. The world is a better place because of him. And, and the church is, has been enriched by him and through him. Yep, 
it's just unfortunate, I think, that that driving passion of his life was, I think, wrongheaded in the pursuit of, of um, academic respectability, which you just will never have. You can never get it. Okay, let's let's look at a couple of house cleaning matters before we launch in here. We're on page 29 of your syllabus, just so you kind of know where we are. But um, timelines are due next Monday night right here. Bring your peace offering. Okay, paper, print it, staple it. Upper left-hand corner. Put your name on it. Right? Basic sort of stuff. And I will read it, and I will interact with you on it, and I will return it to you the following last day of class, the 8th. Okay? That's my commitment to you. Turn in your peace offering. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the 8th is our last class. So we need to power through the remainder of this syllabus tonight, next Monday night, and the following, and we will do it. We will make it because we're done with the book, okay? We're done with the book. So we will finish the syllabus, and we will complete it on time. We are planning another men's breakfast for the last Saturday of June, so you can mark your calendar for that if you are so inclined. Do another men's breakfast the last Saturday in June. At that, we will bring you an overview of the fall hermeneutics class, what you can expect in that class. Okay, And there will be some summer pre-reading to prep you for the class. So it won't be exhaustive. We're not going to bury you. But the, it'll be way more profitable if you've got a little bit under your belt before you get there. Okay, So we'll make that all clear for you. Um, I think it's going to be... Jeff is going to be teaching the class, by the way. And uh, Jeff, we're, are we doing uh, Zook's book? So it's um, Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Zook. Okay, so you could go out and buy it now. Okay, Basic Bible Interpretation, Roy Zook. It's a good book, very good book. Okay. And there'll be a syllabus and on all the rest of that, okay? So, let's see, is there anything else? I think that's it. Present day. Hmm. Well, R.C. Sproul would probably be a candidate, yes, for the recovery of Reformed soteriology um, for the benefit of the church, yes. So, I, you know, I would think about Spurgeon, for example. Um, probably D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mean, it's just, it's so hard because it's really hard to not see all of your contemporaries or close contemporaries as the most important people. It's harder as you get removed by centuries to, to properly evaluate. And if you guys are doing dates, 100 dates, you're probably noticing that yourself. It's trying to figure out, okay, how do I, you know, when I first said 100 dates, you probably thought, oh, 100 days, I couldn't possibly do that. And now I think what you probably realize is, you know what, how do I get this thing down to 100 dates? There are so many possible Dates that are significant, and how do I whittle this thing down? Because I don't want 200 dates. I want 100. 
Right? I don't want 101. I want 100. So it's, it, it just requires you to sift and sort. So, but yeah, probably some of those would be um, would be men I think that have been very significant. Okay. So in your syllabus, I, I know you got your thumb in page 89, but but turn back to the back of it, and let me just acquaint you with some of what's there for you. We're not going to really spend any time with it, I don't think. But I want you to acquaint you with it. So on page 62, we are going to be talking about John Calvin as we finish up the section on the Reformation. And, and these are just some um, papers that I wrote years ago on some of these different topics. And I just included them to you as, to, as much as anything to give you a, just a little bit of a snippet. Of, so, for example, Calvin's Institutes is 1,500 pages. I commend it to you. So it's a good read. It's worth reading. There's a reading schedule, by the way, for Calvin's Institutes that will take you through it in a year without killing you. It's all broken down into, you know, sections, how much to read every day, five days a week, and it gets you through it in a year. So if you're thinking, oh, man, I would love to read Calvin's Institutes. How am I going to get through it? Well, that's a way to do it. But anyway, this is just a little bit of a of uh, my thoughts on uh, certain sections out of the Institutes, so his on predestination, baptism, and so forth. Then on page 64, we didn't talk about this last week when we talked about the Anabaptists, and I don't want to, just from a time's sake, go back to this, but if you're interested in the Anabaptists, um, this document, speaking about conversion in Anabaptist thought, so how did they view conversion. What were they looking for to determine whether someone had been truly converted to the Lordship of Christ and, and so forth? So there's just a bullet points. There's, there's quotes from various uh, of these Anabaptists, Sattler and, and Grable and so forth. Okay. In page 66, there's a little um, brief evaluation of the Westminster Confession. Okay. So you can Kind of look at that, see what you think. And that'll work for now. Again, just to acquaint you with what's back there. All right, now, let's talk about our friend here. Notice the air flaps on his hat. Okay. Kind of a sweet hat. There's another picture of him. I can pull that one up, make it a little bigger. Same thing. He always had a hat. I think he was bald. Yeah, he was very skinny. He was, uh, oh, as you will see, he was in very poor health. He was in very poor health. So, died at 55. Okay. Worked himself to death. Died at 55. Poor health. Okay, here we go. John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. So, Calvin, like Luther, originally studied law. <laughs> we see that in a lot of uh, theologians, that logical mind, I think. Carried his training over into his later studies of theology. At the age of 24, his words, God subdued and brought my heart to docility, he wrote later in that year. Okay, So that's the year he credits that he came to faith at age 24. He was forced to flee his native France. So he's, uh, he is actually French due to religious persecution. This was the Catholic persecution of the Huguenots, the, the French Protestants. Okay, Most of them were killed. So Protestantism did not survive in France, and he was forced to flee. 
1533, he's forced to flee. Oh, that's what he said. Sorry. Uh, intending to take up his life. Notice this. He was a recluse by temperament. So intending to take up life as a theologian and a writer. He wrote the first copy of his Institutes when he was 27 years old, 140 pages. It was dedicated to the King of France. It was written as an apologetic for the Reformed faith, written to the Catholic King of France. Okay, so his dedication. Uh, he was persuaded by Guillaume Farel to become the pastor of the church in Geneva, Switzerland. You remember that one, right? We read that in the book. Farel told him God would curse him if he didn't come and do it. And uh, it's kind of interesting because the guy so persuaded of the sovereignty of God uh, could have somebody just scare him into doing something he didn't want to do. But anyway, well, pastor in Geneva, he was forced out for a brief while, actually three years, and then invited back. And when he came back, he picked up in preaching in the Psalms, just the next Psalm, you know, from where he had been three years prior. He just picked it back up and kept preaching. Preached three services daily. Three services daily, right? So there's no room for pastors to ever say they're overworked when they compare themselves to Jean Calvon. Three services daily wrote commentaries on 49 books of the Bible, expanded his institute so it's current 1,500 pages, two volumes. All this despite the fact his health was bad. He suffered from severe migraine headaches. Anybody here struggle with migraines at all? Experience with migraines? They're debilitating. So it was a constant struggle in his life. He also, um, I don't think this is coarse to say this, he... he uh, was severely afflicted with hemorrhoids as well, uh, which makes it really hard to sit in a chair for extended periods of time <laughs> and write books. Okay. He died at the age of 55, a tired and burned out man. Let's see here. Uh, he had tremendous sadness in his life. He lost his wife and his only son. Both died. His only son died in, in the infancy, and then he lost his wife not long after that. His, um, his maid was accused, right after his wife died, his maid was accused of adultery and imprisoned because that's the way it was done in those days. And then she was exonerated and released, and nine years later, rearrested for adultery with his servant. So that was. Um, his, did I say it was his brother's wife? Is that what I said? I should have said that. It was his brother's wife who was ultimately arrested and imprisoned for adultery. So the man had scandal in his home and tremendous personal loss. So you can see why he looks kind of like he does. And uh, interesting historical tidbit, his wife was an Anabaptist widow. Now, how would an Anabaptist become a widow? Because if a man is called to be an Anabaptist pastor, his wife is called to be a widow in those days. So, he married her, loved her. Calvinism itself. If Erasmus laid the egg of the Reformation in his Greek New Testament, Luther hatched it, and then John Calvin trained it to maturity. Calvin's Geneva became a magnet for other reformers who came to study and see how, quote, a Christian city, close quote, should be run. 
You remember we looked, it's on page 28, just to review, refresh you. We looked at these two models, if we, if, if you will, of, of how the world was viewed. So Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, was the Anabaptist view, and Corpus Christianum, the body of Christianity, would have been Calvin's view of how, how the world operated, where the members of society and the members of the church were overlapping circles. This was the Christian city concept. So even for the example of the, uh, the adultery of his sister-in-law, she was imprisoned. That was a civil crime. The magistrate was involved, tried, convicted, imprisoned for it. Okay. The impact of Calvin as a cultural force cannot be overestimated. And this is really interesting because for the majority of modern scholarship, they hate Calvin and his influence on Western civilization. For example, John Calvin uh, kind of pioneered the regulatory principle, the idea that unless the scripture specifically allows it, then it's forbidden. So for Calvin, there was no music, musical instruments in the church. They would just sing psalms a cappella. Luther loved to write new lyrics to old beer-drinking songs, but Calvin, none of that. Um, he had a very uh, strict view of art and architecture, plain architecture, that sort of thing. Reaction to Roman Catholic architecture, Roman Catholic icons, and those kinds of things. So a lot of people uh, see him and his influence as sort of a cultural rollback and not in a favorable way. But here we go. This is from uh, Stanford Reed. His book, Calvin, His Influence in the Western World. Quote, at the bottom, however, it was because Calvin had penetrated so profoundly into the depths of the Christian worldview that he was able to develop a proper sense of history and of its dynamics, that he understood, as Augustine before him, the seminal meaning of the biblical doctrine of creation, that he acknowledged the sovereignty and the providence of God over all things so that nothing escaped God's creator will, made it possible for him to see that this will extends also to history and to that which is central to history, man's forming activity, which is the heart of cultural development. All right, so what is he saying? What he's basically saying is that for Calvin, God's providential rule over his creation through his highest creation, mankind, and the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate was the exercise of God's providence and the creation of Western civilization, which for Calvin, and I think uh, certainly I would agree, was the highest expression of, of culture of its day. Now, as dominant a cultural force in Western history as Calvinism is, it remains most known for its emphasis on the sovereignty of God, particularly in the realm of salvation. Before we investigate this issue, it's helpful to return to the 5th century to be, I would say here, reintroduced to a man and a controversy that has impact on the church even to this day. Do you remember this fellow? We talked about him. Uh, it's not a very clear picture. Let's see if we can make it a little more clear here. Is that marginally better? It was probably clearer when they painted it thousand years ago. 
Okay. This is Augustine. Remember him? And his mother, Monica, who followed him around praying for him. And he was eventually converted. But in that little text box, which for you is on page 11, if you want to go back to it, we looked at it on page 11. You can see it there again. I moved it around. I had it here originally in the syllabus, and I moved it back to get it more chronological. This would be a good name and date to have on your 100-date peace offering. Augustine was born in North Africa to a pagan father, a devout Christian mother named Monica. He's a brilliant individual who was unable to bridle his lust, fathering a child by a concubine while still a teenager. Converted to Christianity in 387, he rapidly rose in importance, being ordained a priest in 391. Then in 395, he was made bishop of Hippo in North Africa. He weighed in on the Donatist controversy. Remember we looked at the Donatists again last week? The Anabaptists were were tagged with the schismatic movement of the Donatists, and uh, that was used as a, as a lever to, to persecute them. Uh, so he weighed in on that controversy, even though it, it preceded him chronologically. He said, by writing that the sacraments are not dependent upon the righteousness of the priest who administers them, but are because God's grace operates through them. Ex opere operato, that they... they uh, are effective by the virtue of their operation. His greatest contribution to theology came as a result of the Pelagian controversy. Pelagian controversy. Remember, a British monk named Pelagius taught that a man did not inherit Adam's sin, but that individuals were born neutral, so they have the ability to choose good or evil. Augustine countered that no one could choose God unless God led him to it, and the Council of Ephesus in 431 confirmed Augustine's view. It became... Orthodoxy from that point forward. Okay. So Augustinian, the Augustinian view of man as fallen in sin, irreparably fallen in sin, certainly forms a foundation that Luther built on, Calvin built on, Zwingli built on, and indeed Reformed theology is built on. Calvin wrote, page 30, Calvin wrote extensively on the sovereignty of God in salvation. Sorry, I think maybe it's 29 on the bottom for you. And the ability, the inability of the natural man to do anything to place God in his debt. It was not until his death, however, that his followers crystallized his thinking into what is commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. Notice this happens after he's dead. So he is not the originator of the five points of Calvinism. And thank his followers to that and the controversy that I want to talk with you about here that began with this fine fellow. Let's make him a little smaller too. Got some bad light shining on this. Sorry about that. And a big shadow across him. But anyway, it's one of the few pictures, by the way. What do you notice about that picture? No hat. It is interesting. And he's bald as a billy ball. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, hatless. This is James Arminius. James Arminius. Early in the 17th century, that'd be the 1600s, 1560 to 1609, student of Theodore Beza, Calvin's student, 
began to question the Calvinism that he had been taught. After an extended period of study, he presented a series of lectures at the University of Leiden in which he questioned the Calvinism which he had been taught. Not really wanting to completely break with Calvinism, he instead wanted to amend it. But he only succeeded in splitting Calvinism into two camps. After his death, here we go again, after his death, his followers issued the Remonstrance of 1610, in which they delineated five points of departure from the Calvinism of the day. These points are, first, election and condemnation conditional by foreknowledge. Okay, It's conditioned by the foreknowledge of God. Two, universal atonement. Three, Holy Spirit helps in producing saving faith. Four, grace is resistible. And then five, uncertainty of perseverance, which leads me to ask you, do you know in Calvinism it's a tulip? Do you know what the flower of Arminianism is? It is a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Yep. All the jokes are old, but we'll be here all week. Okay? <laughs> all right. After years of bitterness, the issue was decided at the Council of Dort, 1618-19, at which the Arminian position was condemned, and in keeping with the ethic of the day, the inherents were banished. Thus, the five points of Calvinism really did not originate as such with John Calvin, but were developed in answer to the five points of Arminianism. The Calvinistic position became the standard for the Westminster Confession of 1647 and the Baptist Confession, Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, to name just a couple. Okay, so that's how that comes together. Yes, sir. Um, could you just address point everyone? Yes. God's foreknowledge. God looking down the corridor of time and seeing who will choose to believe. Okay, here's what I've got for you. I'm gonna. I've got more than enough. It looks like. I'm gonna start them on both sides. Is a nice side by side. We'll we'll take some time to look at this together. Of Calvinism and Arminianism compared. I love these kinds of charts. I find them really helpful. Put it all in one place. There should be plenty. So. And in the back of your syllabus, uh, page, is it page 60? Wait a minute, I gotta look on the right. I got two syllabuses going here. I got the original and I got this one. Yeah, page 60. There you go. Okay. So what I've handed out to you is um, not a direct comparison of the five points of Calvinism and Arminianism. That's on page 60 in your syllabus. We'll look at that perhaps after. But what I want to look at you first is just the theological issues and understand how these positions are kind of arrived at. So does everybody, everybody have one? Okay, everybody good? Should be plenty, I think. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so... So, original sin. So, notice how these... The, the, um, listen, it all starts here. <laughs> it really does. It starts with your understanding of original sin, what it is, how it's dealt with, what its effect is upon 
mankind. So you see, from a Calvinistic um, position, we arrive at uh, total what's considered total depravity. That doesn't mean that somebody is as brave as they could be, or as bad off. Let me put it this way: that they're not as bad as they could be, but they're as bad off as they could be. They're unable to do anything that merits God's favor. Okay? Doesn't mean that they're not able to do. Um, Good things at a human level, be kind, generous, good fathers, you know, um, good citizens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, but none of that has any merit before God because why? Well, because of the guilt inherited from Adam, they fell in Adam. You notice here the Arminian position is that it's a weakness inherited from Adam. So right away you, you've got this question: uh, How dead is dead? Right? Are they are they all the way dead, or are they just mostly dead? Yes. And if they're just mostly dead, then what do we do? We go through the pockets and look for loose change. That's right. So, for some of you, you're with me. For the rest of you, sorry. You are culturally deprived of probably one of the finest movies, I think. <laughs> finest lowbrow movies. <laughs> okay. Uh, notice the effect on human on the human will. One is in bondage to sin; the other is free to do spiritual good. So right away we see that how you understand the constitution of man leads you in divergent paths, and 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 thus the the problem is different, and so the solution will be different. The grace of God, common grace given to all, saving grace given to the elect. What is common grace? Well. Say what? That God doesn't destroy all of us this instant. <laughs> well, it's an expression of his common grace, yes. What are other expressions of his common grace? He reigns on the just and the unjust, yes. Okay. Anything else? Everybody gets wet. Everybody's not immediately destroyed. What else? Sunshine? Sure. Hey, you can get married? You have children? You raise family? You can enjoy a measure of goodness from this world? God allows the wicked to pick fruit off trees, <laughs> grow trees, fruit trees, so forth? I mean, it's just, if you begin to just stop and think about all of the amazing generosity of God to people who hate him. And you're right, why doesn't he snuff them out immediately? And from that point forward, his goodness. Yes, that's right. So the, the fact that, yes, the argument of Romans 1, that's right. Yep. Okay. Uh, so for the Arminian position, it's an enabling grace given to all, saving grace given to those who believe, persevering grace given to those who obey. So we've got these stratifications or categories of grace. Can you expand on what persevering grace is? Persevering grace would be the, the idea of uh, that um, by the grace of by this persevering grace in Arminian uh, construction is given to you that you would continue to believe and um, and trust Christ and thus end up with Him eternally, and it's contingent upon your obedience. 
In other words, your disobedience would sever your linkage with that and thus your status before God. So the idea that you're not eternally secure. Okay? Predestination, rooted in God's decrees, rooted in God's foreknowledge. Talked about that a little bit. Here we go. Here's one. Uh, regeneration itself. Is it monogistic or is it synergistic? In other words, cooperative. Does God regenerate himself alone with consultation of no one other than within his, his own mind? Or is it synergistic? Is it somehow a cooperative effort between man and God? Okay. We're going to circle back to that, so just hold on to that one. Atonement, Christ's death, a substitutionary penal sacrifice versus Christ's death, a sacrifice that God benevolently, benevolently accepted in place of a penalty. Okay? You can just see the differences here. Extent of the atonement, intended only for the elect, intended for all. Uh, ask me your question again. I don't. I think I missed it. Where is the... Um, well, it... it comes from the, uh, if you look on page, well, probably 61 maybe in your syllabus, under limited atonement, that chart, you look at it side by side. So the Arminian position first is, uh, Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all people and for every person, only those who believe on him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sins. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if a person chooses to accept it. Yes, right. accepts, accepts. accepts as opposed to accept it. Yeah. yeah, good, good point, I agree. Too bad I don't have a pencil. Yep, yep, good. Is that cleared up? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, extent of the atonement, well, we just read, intended only for the elect, intended for all. The application of the atonement, by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the will of God, or by the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the will of the sinner. Okay. Now we get to this, the order salutis, the, the order of salvation. So, for a Calvinist position, it's this is standard stuff. It's election, predestination, union with Christ, calling, regeneration, faith. Repentance, justification, sanctification, glorification. For the Arminian position, it's calling, faith, repentance, regeneration. Justification, perseverance, glorification. So here's my question for you. Okay, Just think about it this way. John chapter 7 and verse 3. This is Jesus' confrontation with Nicodemus. He says to him, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, here's my question for you. Is that an indicative or an imperative? In other words, is it a statement of fact, the indicative, or is it a command to be obeyed? Just think about that. And, and a person's understanding of this is expressed in the way they... Uh, make invitation of the gospel to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again. Is that Arminian or Calvinistic in its expression? It's Arminian. Even though it finds itself on the lips of Calvinists on occasion. 
because they're not careful enough in what they're saying. Be born again. Be regenerated so that you might believe. In other words, can dead men believe? Back to to, um, original sin, human will, and so forth. So if you are truly dead in your trespasses and sin, then you must be regenerated by the power of the Spirit of God in order that you might believe. In order to see, and this would be Jonathan Edwards' kind of expression, in order to see the beauty of Christ. In other words, God in regeneration rearranges, or, or no, that's a bad word, um, gives you new affection, changes your affections, so that Christ, who was once um, not desirable to you, becomes irresistibly desirable to you, and you flee to Christ. That's a, that's a reform, that's a Calvinistic understanding of the process, the, the order salutis. Right? And it really boils down to that, the answer to that one verse in John 3, 7. Is John saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Something you must do. That's an imperative. But it's actually, grammatically, it's an indicative. You must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Well, well how can a man enter into his mother's Womb a second time and be born. You can't. Must be born by the water and the Spirit. Well, and you're the teacher of the Jews and you don't understand that? Understand what? Understand Ezekiel 36, where it's laid out very clearly. But the Spirit does the work. So, that's the... That's really, in my opinion, that's, that's where it really separates, is at that point. Perseverance of the saints. So perseverance of all the elect by the grace of God, perseverance dependent on obedience. Okay, uh, illustration. I walk my grandson, little David, across the road, and I say, hold my hand while we cross the road. I expect him to hold my hand. Is his safety dependent on his grip on my hand or my grip on his? I think we know the answer, right? It is my grip on his. Are the scriptures filled with commands to obedience? Yes, they are. But ultimately, is our perseverance dependent upon our ability to obey? I hope not. Otherwise, he loves me, loves me not, loves me, loves me not. It's dependent on his ability to hold on to me, which liberates me to obedience to begin to live out my my family identity, right? Notice back here, union with Christ, that is a doctrine that is so underappreciated. It is in union with Christ that we, ex- that we are, are, are given the, all of the riches and glories of Christ. That we become part of the family of God. 
in that process. So when we understand our family identity, we want to act it out. We want to be like our father. So does Reformed theology teach a, a sloppy Christianity? Not properly taught and understood. No, not at all. But remember the problem Calvin had, and not Calvin alone, all the magisterials. <laughs> what was the problem they had when it came to obedience? It was the combination of the church and the state. It was the combination of the church and the state, yes. Because why? Well, because the church is filled with unregenerate people who have been passed through the baptismal font, as it were, as infants and brought into this covenant community and they're unregenerate. And there's no real mechanism to discipline them in that process. Other than throw them in jail, <laughs> cut off their hands, hang them for the bad stuff. But there's just no real good way to purify the church. And the Anabaptists see that and respond pretty negatively against it. They're looking for a pure church. They're looking for obedience. And if we, t if we took the time, we're not going to tonight. We're already over time. What else is new? Um, and you look at that conversion in Anabaptist thought, you'll see that thread running through it. They are looking for fruit. Real change. And, and, and John Calvin would say, of course. Of course. Because why? Well, because regeneration makes you a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. The old has all become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. It, it's inevitable that it will produce fruit. If it's true. It's true. So, okay. On your own, if you want to pursue these, uh, these categories that are on page 60, 61 in your you can do that. It's a decent write-up of the side-by-side -side comparisons of the five points. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.